Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here this morning, praising and glorifying our Lord with you, and uh, because he is trustworthy as we seek to obey him. Let's continue our reading from this morning. Uh, Psalm chapter 73, and we're going to read from verse 12 on to the end. Verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? All, uh, and, earth is nothing, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is my strength. God is the strength of my side, of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Thank you, brother. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, uh, thank you so much that we we live in this country, in this city, where uh, we can gather as your people in safety uh, and hear you and worship you every Sunday. Thank you for that privilege. Uh, Father, some of us are here today with... With uh, joyous hearts, things are well for us, and we thank you for that. Uh, But for some of us, Lord, we're we're suffering, whether it's some sort of sickness or whether it's depression or whether it's uh, whether we've been having trouble in our marriage or whatever's going on, Lord. For some of us, our hearts are heavy, our hearts are are focused on other things. They're consumed with other things right now. The last thing we're able to do is listen to you. And so would you help those of us in that situation, Lord, right now, to, to, that, you'd, that you'd calm our hearts and that you'd allow us to just trust you for a moment to, to put those things aside, however heavy they may be, and that you'd free our hearts and minds to be able to hear your word now and that your Holy Spirit would use it to encourage us and instruct us uh, so that we can know you and enjoy you more and live for your glory. And Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, why does God let the godless thrive? Recently, I was talking with a girl uh, who left a residential college at a local uni. Now, this girl is a, is a recent convert. She's been a Christian for maybe six to 12 months. And the reason why she left that college was because the college sent a letter out to her saying essentially that she was no longer welcome. And the backstory is this. The backstory is that uh, a number of months ago, she decided to bravely take a stand uh, for her view on same-sex marriage. 
and this became quite uh, well known very quickly at this, this uh, institution. And the college uh, ran a forum and they invited her to speak at it. And uh, she was the only Christian present. And uh, she was attacked and criticised not only by students, but by the academics who ran that college as well. One 19-year-old girl bravely takes a stand for what she believes in a respectful way, and that's how she was treated. Now, when she told me the story, I didn't really know what to say, but I know what I felt. And I felt really angry. I, I just imagined thoughts of going into that college now and giving the, the powers that be a real serve. How dare some, some man or woman who's my age or older, in a position of authority and power, pressure and attack a first-year student just because of their own uh, views on a particular issue? How is that okay? And then to have the audacity to say, well, you know what, we don't think this college is a good fit for you anymore. It's discrimination, is it not? Now, the people above her, largely, it seems, are godless. And they are given positions of influence and power, and they're clearly using their power against God's people. Why does God let the godless thrive. I wonder if you've been having similar thoughts lately. Maybe it bothers you subconsciously. Uh, you're faithful to Jesus, but in many ways your life is, not, uh, is a lot worse off than your non-Christian friends. The, the, your friends have less parenting issues than you do. Your friends have less mortgage stress than you. Right? you their marriage seems healthier than yours. Or maybe it's different. Maybe things are really well for you, but they're, they're also well for your non-Christian friends in your life as well. But the thing is, for some of those guys, they don't play by the rules. You see, you get a pay rise at work, and you earned it. You worked really hard for it. But they get a pay rise because they flirted with the boss. You work hard to write your own essays. You stay up until 3 a.m. to get them done. But your friends, they go online... And they have people write them for them, and they get the same grades. Maybe you've chosen to live a responsible life, and now you're retired. You've worked hard, you've paid your dues, you've tried to be faithful to God. And your friends have chosen a carefree life, a, a life full of irresponsibility. And yet, you look at them now, they're the same age, they have the same wealth, the same health, and the same abundance that you share and it all leads you to ask this, what's the point of being faithful to God when God rewards the faithless just as much? It's a matter of justice. And our, our underlying belief, perhaps since we were children, is this, is it not? Good people uh, get rewarded and bad people get punished. But the older we get, the more we realise that this just isn't how life works. We're well and truly into the new year and perhaps this issue is something that's maybe threatening the, the, your ability to enjoy God this year. And I want you to understand this. Psalm 73 has an, a way forward. It gives us an answer to the question. And this is, this is the take-home lesson of the psalm. We need God's perspective to understand. I'll say it again. We need God's perspective to understand. And we'll see in the two halves of the psalm that in the first 16 verses, we learn about what we make, 
without God's perspective, and that is observations. And in the second half, if you know like a golf course, first half, second half, in the second half, 17 to 28, we will see what we do when we have God's perspective. We gain revelation. I said a moment ago that from childhood it's instilled in us in our culture that good people are rewarded and bad people are punished. And King David, uh, who, who wrote this psalm through Asaph, was also taught something from childhood. This is what he was taught. How you begin determines how you will end up. Right? If you delight in the law and you obey God, you will prosper. Those who don't will be judged and punished. It's a very simple formula. But we get to Psalm 73, halfway through the Psalms, and it's as if David is now questioning his childhood convictions. He's asking the same question that some of us are asking in Melbourne. Why is God letting the godless thrive? And in verse 1, have a look at it with me. In verse 1, he says a very heartfelt statement. Surely God, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he really believes this. This is what he believes now, looking back. And in verse 2, we see the problem. You see, David's feet, well, they nearly slipped. He nearly lost his way. He, he was entertaining the idea of straying from God, of going the way of the world. It's as if he was looking down a cliff and there was an ocean and it was very enticing. And he looked back and life was hard and frustrating and he was frustrated by the injustice of it all. And this looked far better. His feet had almost slipped. He'd almost gone down. And it's easy to see why. You see, I used to be a teacher. Uh, if, if my students saw their classmates getting away with things eventually they'd start to reason, well, what's the point of me keeping the rules? And so oftentimes, if you, you saw a teacher that wasn't being consistent with their, the enforcement of their, their rules, good students who were well-behaved towards the end of the year would start to look more like the, the less-behaved students. Right? They would start to play up. They'd start to come to class late. They'd start to speak when the teacher was speaking. It's human nature. You see, we're only really prepared to keep the rules of life if we think they're fair, but maybe even more importantly, that we see that they're enforced fairly. Okay? And in verse 3, David illustrates this in his own way. He really envied the wicked. And he saw their prosperity and he, he just couldn't make sense of it. Why is God blessing, giving so much to these people when these people give so little back to God with their hearts and their lives? And what comes next is, is David's observations. So from verses 4 to 15, imagine it's like a movie. He's just told us the summary. It's like the start of the movie. He said, this is, this is where I'm at now, all right? Surely God is good to Israel. But then, then it says, 10 years earlier. And we're right in the thick of it. We're right in the, the heat, the emotion of what's going on in this man's life. And there are three major observations that he makes about the faithless. Have a look at them with me. Verses 4 and 5. This is what they say. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. See, David's seeing the faithless getting around with fat and sleek bodies. Now, don't ask me how it's a blessing because I don't know. But supposedly in, in those days, being overweight was considered a blessing. It was the equivalent of the trim, toned and tanned person today. Uh, and it probably had something to do with being able to afford food and eat in abundance. Do you ever notice, though, a lot of non-Christians non look good? You look in the mirror and you think, 
Or I follow Jesus. Why did my body bounce like that after pregnancy? Or I follow Jesus. Why did I get the pot belly instead of the six pack? What's with that? But perhaps more importantly here, the second thing is that they have no worries. Right? A guy from my school is a good example. This guy had everything. Okay? He was, he was good looking. He was so good looking the girls would chase him. Right? He was popular. So much so that out of 150 students he became school captain. He was athletic. He made the state and the national times in swimming. He was intelligent. He got over 90 in year 12. And he was a nice guy. He was such a well-rounded person who seemed to have no issues and no problems in any aspect of life. It's like this guy won the Powerball lottery in the genetic lottery. And I look at my life and I think, I must have won the $2 scratchy. What is going on? The point, though, the point, is that God gives gifts and he gives blessings and good circumstances to people who reject him. And this really bothered David. And if we're honest, it has the the possibility of bothering us too. Look at verses 6 to 8. This is observation 2. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come inequity. Their evil imaginations, they have no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. See, these people, they use their, their blessings to mistreat, to punish, to hurt God's people. Why was God letting the godless thrive at the expense of the godly? Now, we get a taste of this in Melbourne, don't we? We've seen recently how powerful politicians and business leaders have slammed the church for its view on same-sex marriage. The the anti-Christian cause, not just on that matter, on many matters, has infiltrated this city and this nation like a virus. The media, business, university, the parliament. You watch Neighbours on Channel 10 and you see a scene played out where a young man uh, says something negative about uh, same-sex relationships and he's slammed for it. You watch The the Project on Channel 10 and you see Margaret Court being being, uh, ridiculed for her views on that issue. You go to university like my friend did and you get told this college is not for you. Why is God letting this happen? Observation 3, look at 9 to 14. These people are like gods, right? Their, their mouths lay claim to heaven, their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and they drink up their waters in abundance and they say, well, how would God even know? Does the Most High know anything? These people have so much influence that it seems to extend to heaven. How ridiculous is that, that somehow they can even influence God? But it gets worse. God's people are being influenced by these people as well. Okay? God's, uh, sorry, God's people are looking to them for leadership. They're looking to them for advice. They're turning from God and they're going the way of the godless. But don't we see this happening? How many Christians do you know in your life who have walked away from God, who have left church? Right? They, haven't, they haven't outright rejected Jesus. If you, if you really push them, they'd say, I still believe in Jesus. But their life looks a whole lot different to what it used to. Do you know, recently, uh, a few of the evening church members and myself, we went to Phillip Island and we, we uh, led on a short-term mission there. We were on the beach. Uh, we were playing volleyball. And I saw a group of young adults and I thought, yep, I'm going to ask them to, to join us to play. And so I went up to them, do you want to come play volleyball? Sure, we'll play volleyball. And, and they, they, they got into the teams. 
And uh, a moment later, one of their, their, their mother walked up, because they were all siblings. And I knew her. And I thought, oh, this is great. She's a really committed Christian. These guys must be Christians. And so just gently, as we were playing, I said, oh, so what church? Do you go to, go to your, your parents' church? Oh, no, we don't go to church. I'm like, all right. And then a few minutes later, I asked one of the guys about, you know, what he used to study at university and what he did. And he says, yeah, I, I used to um, be really actively involved in the Christian Union. I used to be one of the presidents, actually. I'm like, what? How does that happen? What is going on? None of them go to church. Christians drift for lots of reasons. But this is the reality, friends. There is a generation out there who are choosing popularity over Jesus. Right? The cost of following Jesus is growing in the city. And Christ- the sad thing is that Christians are they're finding this experienced, obsessed culture intoxicating. They're finding the promise of happiness in the perfect holiday, in the perfect relationship, in the perfect job. They're finding that irresistible. And it's all on offer and it's all being promoted by those with great power, with great cultural and political sway over even God's people. Why is God letting it happen? See, David is forcing us, he's pushing us into this corner, if you like, to question God. God said, those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his day, Lord, Lord, day and night, whatever they do prospers, Psalm 1. But here's the thing, observation, God's people aren't prospering and God's enemies are. And the conclusion, well, God doesn't keep his promises. He's not just. And that's exactly, look at verse 3, that's exactly what David was starting to conclude. With that same confidence he began with in verse 1, he says, Surely, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, and I've washed my hands in innocence. Right? He, he was really becoming convinced that it was all for nothing. It was a complete waste of his time. And if it ended there, I've got to be honest, it'd be hard for me to keep being a Christian, but it doesn't, it continues. Look at what it says. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. Friends, this is the turning point in the psalm. This is where the big idea comes out. Right? David realizes something fundamental that completely changes his mentality, his focus. You see, once he entered that sanctuary, and once he, once he listened to God and became silent before God, God made it clear to him what was going on. David moved from conviction based on his observations of life to conviction based on God's revelation. David gained God's perspective and he understood. And what did he understand? Look at verse 17 again. Look at the end of it. It says this. He understood their final destiny. In a nutshell, the faithless won't thrive forever. It's as if God is letting these people have a false sense of security. Um, I don't know if many of you know yet. I'm a member of the Defence Force. I'm trained to be an Air Force chaplain. And recently I spent one week uh, at officer training school. One of the things that I found quite interesting was this. Uh, oftentimes, you'll, you'll see in the media, there'll be a new uh, bit of defence technology, the Collins-class submarine, the F-35A you know, strike fighter jet, whatever it is. Some amazing thing that costs millions and millions of dollars. And usually, politicians in the media will trash talk it. They'll say, what a waste of money. This thing is useless, it doesn't work. What a waste of our taxpayers' money. 
And that's exactly what our enemy nations are led to believe too, right? They hear about our Air Force, our Navy, our Army having these pieces of technology through the media and they think, well, it's great. That's really good because there's no threat to us then. But friends, this is a strategy, you see. Because it's, it's easy to convince someone that something's useless, but actually, in all reality, it's not. And when the time comes to defend this country, well, actually, all the things we have working for us are going to be very effective. It gives a false sense of security to the other people, the enemy, in the same way God is doing just that with those who reject him. They think they'll be fine. Either, either they'll die one day and they'll, they'll just go into the, into the, into the gra- ground and you know, they'll cease to feel or think everything will be fine. Or if there is some sort of afterlife, they'll be there and it'll be nice. Look now with me at the new revelation that David has gained since he went into the sanctuary. Okay, this is what he used to think. People who reject God are cruising through life. They have no struggles. They're healthy and strong. Look at verse 18. Revelation, you place them on slippery ground. How suddenly they are destroyed. See, people will not go on living forever like that. Sudden death is around the corner. Here's his second observation from verses 6 to 8. They wear pride as their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Verse 19, this is the revelation. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. You see, the faithless who mistreat God's people with arrogance, one day, if they don't come to turn to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, they will experience a terror that makes terrorism and all the terrorist attacks we've seen look trivial. Observation three. These people have so much influence that it seems to extend to heaven and influence even God's people too. And verse 20 says this, Revelation, they are like a dream. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. See, that's the reality of what's really happening. But now consider some of the situations that we are finding ourselves in right now. Here's one. Maybe you're at school or university. My my friends at school or uni have dropped me, right? They've they've stopped talking to me because of my view on a certain issue, on same-sex marriage or something like that. This is what the New Testament says in in the Bible. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but you rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ that you may be overjoyed in his glory when it's revealed. Or maybe it's this, I recently became a Christian and all of my family have turned from me. Revelation, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Or maybe it's this, um, you're a grandparent and, and you don't get to see your grandchildren anymore because your, your children, well, they think that you're brainwashing them. Well, here's something for you. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though, now for a little while. While you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Hindsight is a beautiful thing, and hindsight is exactly what David shows us in verses 21 and 2. Look what he says. He says this, You know, God, when my heart was grieved, and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. 
You see, he realised the reality of his own thinking. He'd let himself become convinced of something that just wasn't true. He'd stopped trusting in God's goodness and sovereignty. And that's something that we need to be aware of. And this is why we need God's perspective to understand these sorts of circumstances. One of the most important words I've learned in the 10 years that I've followed Jesus is this. Perspective. All right? It has the, the power, if you don't have it, if you don't have God's perspective, it has the power to ruin a friendship. It has the power to ruin your work. It has the power to ruin your relationship and even your faith. We are always, we are always in need of God's perspective. And look at what that perspective has done for David now. Look at, look at it. Look at how joyous and encouraged and comforted he is that he's gained it. Look at 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, it feels like life is deeply unfair and then we die. But even experience tells us that what we feel does not always match what is true. For, for example, you might have a friend that you don't feel loved by, okay? And, and uh, you don't feel loved by them because they never give you encouraging words, words of affirmation. But they do love you, and they, and they show love by spending time with you. And so the reality is, what they feel is not what you sense. You see? There's a discord. What we feel does not always reflect reality. And this is so important when it comes to God. Here's what God wants you to know this morning. You are always with him, even when it feels like he is far. He's so present that in a sense, it's like he's holding your hand. Just like you hold, uh, you, your, your mother held your hand, or you hold your child or your grandchild's hand. And God is guiding you with his counsel. He's, you know, he's working through all of the channels that he chooses to use to help you to live this life to the full and live for his glory. And one day, he says, you will be taken into glory. Do you notice that the afterlife, it's not called shame. It's not called defeat. It's called glory. And, and the natural way to respond is the way David did. God, who do I have in heaven but you? In, in all of this world, who is like you? Because you alone love me that much, and you alone are worthy of my desire. Our, our bodies may fail. Our hearts will rise and fall with everything that excites and, and uh, discourages in this life. But God is the strength of our hearts. Friends, that's the perspective that will enable us not just to survive this world, but to thrive in this world. When you're confident of these things, you can live a content life and you can rest because you know God is just and one day he will wrong the rights around you. But let me take you back to my friend's story. My, friend, my friend's observation is this. There are people above me in power who are mistreating me. If anyone should be asking why God is letting the goddess thrive right now, it's her. But you know what? She's, she, she's not discouraged. She's soldiering on. And the reason why she can is because she knows what David knows. She knows Psalm 73. Right? She has God's perspective and she knows. She understands. She knows that one day those people will share the same fate as those who mistreated the Israelites in David's day. God won't let injustice reign forever. And God won't let our suffering happen forever. One day everything will be made right and all people will be called to account. God's perspective, that's what we need. The longer we journey in this world, 
the more we're going to see and observe that God is thriving. And maybe it hasn't hit you just yet. Maybe this is not real for you just yet. And if that's you, I want you to know it's really coming. And I want you to understand why the world works this way and be ready for it. And pray that God in that time would help you to have his perspective to understand that situation. Now, though we need that perspective, maybe the most encouraging reason to believe that justice will come is because of that, the cross. In the cross, we see justice. Because on the cross, Jesus took the sins of many. And after the cross, Jesus rose. And because he rose, it gives us certainty that the the cross was real, that his work on the cross was real. He was not a religious myth. And the promise that he, he will come back one day to, to take us home to him and to call people to account for their actions, that tells us that it's credible. And if you, if you struggle to believe that the goddess will one day cease to thrive, I want you to take courage and know that either they will come to faith too and Christ's work will cover them too or they will pay for what they've done. Right? The year ahead will probably see um, the goddess thrive for you. But every time your heart sinks, every time your blood boils, remind yourself to see the situation the way God does and understand that justice is coming. When you doubt that justice, look to that and remember that there is. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. Let's pray to him now in response. God in heaven, thank you for David's story. Thank you that the Bible is filled with other people's experiences that we can relate to today in 2018. Thank you for being faithful and just. You don't let people get away with injustice forever. Thank you for being so loving that you sent your own son to enter into our story, taking on humanity and copying your wrath on the cross so that there could be a way forward to be forgiven, that you, to know you again as we do. And we thank you for this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.